Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Ricky Armelino, who is a singer, guitar player, songwriter, producer, and engineer, who is presently a guitar player and vocalist for Ice Nine Kills and Hawk. He was formerly in This or the Apocalypse. Here goes. Ricky Armelino, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hello. How are you? Hello. Good. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And I would just want to say congrats on all the success and how well everything's been going. It's been cool seeing you kind of move through multiple different phases of your career now for like a decade. Thanks. I, I like to call it fumbling. Fumbling? Yeah. Yeah. I just fumbled my, I fumbled my way through it. If you keep on getting up and doing new things, is it really fumbling? I like to call it that, but... <laughs> I mean, also, isn't most people's careers in music like some bit of random guesswork? Yeah. Like, no one really knows what the fuck they're doing. You know, I always think back, it's the people like kind of at the mid-level that have strong advice being like, dude, you got to do, you can't do this, you got to do that. You can get like lost in a lot of like advice and stuff like that. And I just always think back on, I had a friend that used to give me stock advice and he was so arrogant about it. And so like, because he had made like one good move. Just one. And he lost all of it. And the amount of humility he had to have after that was like, yeah, I don't know what happened. And I kind of feel like music, the music career, like entertainment, it's like an apprentice art. You pass, you, you kind of like mm -hmm. pass knowledge from, from one person to the next. But there's always... Music is always flooded with people with that one success story. And if you talk to them about like how, you know, how they pulled it off, it's total fucking nonsense. <laughs> well, they don't I mean? know how they pulled it off. They, yeah, they're yeah. like, you know what you got to do? You got to yell at your manager. That's what I used to do. I yelled at my manager, so I succeeded. <laughs> yeah. Also, though, I think that it's bad to take advice from people who have been successful for so long at the upper echelons that they have lost touch with what it was like before they were successful. Yes. It's also bad to take advice from people that just randomly became successful out of nowhere. Yes. And I think if we extrapolated this conversation long enough, we just end up being like, all right, I think we just landed at it's bad to take advice. Advice is something that should be very specific. Like if you go to an expert about the best way to set up a guitar for something, is say that you want to get better at setting up guitars. Well, yeah, go get some advice from someone who does that all the time. That's a very like definable, tangible, specific thing. You know what? One thing that's really helped me out is I have a couple people. I normally like I have people I always have to bounce things off of mm -hmm. who are brutally honest with me. So occasionally vicious. And that's always kind of, you know, when you're manic and you think you have a really good idea and you're like, all right, check it out. I got this show idea. And it's not so good. Send it to them and they're like, meh, maybe just focus on, you know, X, Y, Z. And you're like, ah, okay, all right. <laughs> well, I do think that's important because uh, it's very hard for us to have perspective on our own ideas. Yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah, because we get wrapped up in the emotion of it all, whether it's a business idea or a musical idea or whatever. It's tough. I do a lot of writing with people and that's basically half my day is experience, experiencing people who are really caught up in a, 
individual aspect of a certain idea or, you know, it's, it's weird. We always create the framework for what we think makes something good, whether it's an idea musically, you know, visually, literally anything. And a lot of times people have really specific parameters for it. I always think about that. I think about that a lot because I'm from Lancaster. So, you know, everybody's kind of moving on to the genty stuff now, but there's a period of time where every band from this area was, you know, mine included, like a true metalcore band. You don't exactly have the same like Butch Vig, you know, style, like song structure things that make that are the requirement for what makes a good metalcore song because you know truth be told a lot of them are pretty random yeah so, song is a is a loose term exactly it's just like a collection of cool parts but then you have people come up in that and they'll be like nah 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 that that transition doesn't work and you're like well it's in the same key and it you know it kind of moves us to that and they'll be like nah you know, it's it just, and you're always just trying to figure out like, you know, I think sometimes it's the goal of like a musician working with somebody else. You're like, I literally got to get inside this guy's head and figure out what the fuck he thinks just so I can, you know, keep this moving along. But that's, that can be applied to literally anything, but it's just people make very strange parameters and rules for what makes something good. And at the end of the day, it's hard to de- deny, though, when a good, you know, a good thing is a good thing and a bad thing is a bad thing. Over the years, I've come to really enjoy, like, just trying to understand content on a level of care. How much can I care about this? How much stuff can I put into it to show that there's effort put into this? And there's, you know, how can we make a, a, a real attempt at giving somebody something that was worth their time to listen to? You know, how do we avoid, like, not wasting somebody's fucking time by being like, hey, we made another CD just in case you want to waste 45 minutes? How do you do that? without sounding contrived you know i'm gonna go on to the ice nine kills topic okay well ice nine kills is a great topic because the that music has a lot of stuff in it oh my god it is packed i spent two months with spencer charnas living in his apartment in the last stages of the record so when it came to like a lot of the instrumental writing and stuff i had a very small part i was sending things over from lancaster you know i have my own studio and everything. But it was when I went out there, the sheer depth, it's hard to describe, but basically every single lyric down to the syllable is agonized over with multiple parts. Like he would do Skype sessions with uh, Steve Sopchak in New York. He was working with, you know, we worked with so many uh, different, like awesome writers and, you know, Drew Falk produced, and he's one of the best vocal producers that I know of the whole time. You know, Spencer was making sure that he didn't miss a single chance to, you know, bring in a pun or a reference to the movie that was the source material. He wanted to take, like, he'd have a list of the actors' names, see, seeing if any of them had a name that could be, you, you know, like in the Freddy song, there's a Craven My Revenge, because, you know, referencing Wes Craven, which is, you know, a clever little thing. But to see somebody making sure that literally every single moment of the song, musically or lyrically, had some sort of little nod or reference to the source material, every single piece of artwork, he'd sit there with the magnifying glass zooming in, trying to see if there was a way to fit in another reference. And this was his full 13 hours a day was just, he was up at eight every day and just ice nine, ice nine, ice nine, ice nine. It was crazy for me because how the fuck do you come back to a normal band that doesn't do that 
and make content and feel like you're actually making a in-depth, thorough experience. And, you know, so I'm always trying to find ways to sort of implement that mindset because I loved it. It was like, wow, this is like, we're making something where if a listener just wants to listen to it, cool. They're going to just listen to it and they're going to go, oh, sure, I either like it or I don't. But if somebody chooses the adventure to like actually dive in, which a lot of the fans have. And I started realizing this is it's like something that makes it a much more enriching experience for them. I worked one of those horror cons. I met like the cast of Halloween Kills and got a photo with them. And I was at like the Ice Nine booth and everything. And, and all of the people at these things are so nice, like so hilariously nice. They're amazing. I recommend if even if people don't like horror, I'd recommend going to one of these things. It would make sense that there would be a nice nine kills booth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a lot of t-shirts, so I guess mm-hmm. I, we got to get rid of them. But the uh, the thing that was crazy is as I was like talking to people, they were bringing up details about the record that I didn't fucking know about where they're like, oh my gosh, and the one song, the way you guys use the, or- uh, the same orchestration, you know, like theme from blah, 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 and you put it in there, but the rev- like you reversed it. And like, I didn't even know about this. And it, it was just cool to be like, all right, this band actually made something that if somebody wants to go like full Mr. Robot on it and like find all the little clues and put things together, they can. And I like that a lot. At the core, though, they're good songs, too. Yeah. Because yeah, like great. you could do all that stuff on bad songs and it wouldn't really matter. It wouldn't really help. <laughs> that is that is you very just true. be dressing up some really shitty songs. But the fact that they're good songs, then I think it's hugely beneficial. I'm just saying that because I know there are some people who are listening who have bad songs and they're going to take that as inspiration to add a bunch of details (laughs) without fixing the shitty core, which is a bad song. We can't stop you from this, but we can give you some more suggestions to make it funnier. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, I'm just saying, like, at the core, Ice Nine Kills is good music. Thank you. That gives it the platform to do all the extra stuff, I think. It's crazy. So yeah, like through that experience and through, you know, being a part of that and also working on Hawk, you know, and and we also try to put a lot of depth of content into stuff as well. And But I, I work on so many different bands when I'm producing and you're always finding yourself in situations where you're like, how do I make this deeper? Just so if you guys you know, if you guys do luck out and get a listener base, how do we make sure that we're actually giving them something that's worth their time, you know? Mm -hmm. And not just like, listen to me, play this riff. I guess it would be different in every situation, but I guess, yeah, is it something where you just know it when, I mean, look, I realize that with art, it's hard to like have necessarily objective criteria, but you got to have something to go on, right? Well, the question is, who am I today and what do I think? Yeah, exactly. Like, you might hate it tomorrow. Exactly. I do have a way around that because that's that's always been a huge problem is you work on things and you go to bed and you're just like, fuck yeah. And you wake up and you just feel embarrassed (laughs) when you listen to it. Like, I've dealt with that before. Like, I listen to it and I'll be like, oh my God, I sent this to four people. And, you know, you're like trying to fix it. And... What I do is I give myself enough time to like, if I can listen to something on four different occasions, you know, if I'm like working on a song and I listen to it tomorrow and then the next day and the next day and I still feel the same way about it, then I usually know that I'm, I've, I've managed to, you know, link all my synapses up that goes mm-hmm. from like the listening to the emotion part and links them together. But it, there are a lot of times that I really think I've hit like some 
form of gold. And I listen the next day and you're like, man, I cannot trust myself. <laughs> As a, that is a legitimate problem. Again, back to what we were first saying, because like you can't know in the moment if something's good or not, because you're too swept up in the emotion of it. You don't have the perspective of like listening to it cold and in context of the entire song. Like say you're working on a pre-chorus that's been like real tough to get. You could come up with like 17 different versions of it. And every time you come up with one, you're like, this is it. But you really don't know until the next day when you the song is out of your head and you listen to it from the very beginning and see how it hits after the song's been playing for 45 seconds. Have you ever experienced it? I'm sure you've experienced this. Changing around a mix, just the mix itself, just like the, the rate of compression on things. And it actually legitimately makes it feel as if there was a BPM change to the song. Like all of a sudden, yes. the song feels faster. I usually err on when the song starts feeling like something made it faster. I don't know why, but I always assume that's better. Because it built tension or something? Or like it's a, like it must be like kicking in adrenaline or something like that. Or just, you know, it feels like it's like been ramped up. That's one thing I, I always know is helping. But I think the, the one thing I learned from uh, Andreas Magnuson, he's one of my best friends. I love him. I love his work amazing person. You know, one time we were we were going back and forth on something and he made a point to me. He was like, well, sometimes you have to choose if you want something that's cool or something that's sweet. What he meant by that is sometimes there's two things that are cool and neither of them are that much better than the other. And you're just going to have to make a decision. And really often, I think it's all art. It is basically when you sit down and you watch a movie, you are essentially you're sitting down and you're committing to watching thousands of decisions that were made. You're watching what lens did they want to use, how much like grain in, in the image, where the lights went, why the lights went there, why they chose which scene into which scene, why they chose that take of the actor, why they chose that vocal take, the music, like, and it's the same with a song, a show, anything. You're listening to the decisions that were made by a group of people and you eventually start finding artists that you're like, you know, I kind of like the decisions that this person makes. It's up to the artist to make those decisions. For me, I change perspective on it so much because there are times I, I really wish I worked on fewer things so I, I could like, you know, just let them like simmer a little bit more. But unfortunately, you, you know, you have like time and money constraints and all those things. But sometimes you just have to force yourself to make decisions. And as you keep going along, you start figuring out ways to make those decisions work. You know what I mean? Like if I'm in a situation where I have a melody that I really like, and I know I like that melody, you know, I have a list of things I can change underneath that melody. Sometimes maybe I have to change the chord progression or and then I have to think about what instruments are supporting the arrangement. Is the melody being done by the right instrument? You know, is, is it a voice? Is it a guitar? Is it what? And then you start thinking rhythmically. Well, is the rhythm guiding my ears from note to note in a logical way? Is the next thing okay? And, you know, and as that, that checklist gets longer, like every single project I work on, but, you know, it's, you eventually get to the point where I think you have that checklist and you, you run through everything. So you're like, okay, I have this part and I'm not sure about it. And then by the time you get through the checklist, as long as you have a little faith in yourself, it usually will turn out fine. But the one thing is, before my checklist was long enough, man, Hawk has like a folder with like 70 
unfinished songs in it because I could just never, we could never figure out how to, you know, some of them are just like a single riff. Some of them are a couple, you know. I'm curious what's on that list. Chord progression, you know, making sure every single part, whether it's just a minor chord that's just chugging, you know, a breakdown or whatever, or that counts as a chord progression to me, but chord progression. Well, what do you mean when you say chord progression? What do you mean? I know that you mean anything with a chord is a chord progression, but like specifically, what are you checking off? Whenever I talk about chords with like artists I'm working with, when you listen to three notes at, at once, it's a chord, or, you know, even two is not considered a chord, right? I've, I've learned the stupidest form of music theory ever. So if I'm like in C major, I just call C the one note. <laughs> That's one. Okay. E's three, you know, so on and so forth. If you're listening to a song, you're listening to lots of different instruments at once sometimes. All of them summed together are making a chord. I try not to think about each instrument in two indi- like as an individual as much as like if you're listening to a guitar and it's playing the one, three, and five note, and then you have a lead that's, you know, scattering in the six note, then you're making a sp- specific chord as the whole song. So sometimes, you know, sometimes the one thing is when you start actually like checking in under the hood and looking at every single individual instrument, you can start being like, dude, one of these instruments is, is making this like a, a major seven chord. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like, that's, that's for a really specific emotion. Mm -hmm. And, and you start changing all those things. And until you have a chord progression that seems to reflect like what kind of movie scene you're trying to make in the song before I would always try to do everything in terms of like, oh, I have this a really good idea for a riff. And then you just start layering things on top of it and muting things until you find the one thing that's okay, these elements work together well. And that's still how how you do plenty of things. But sometimes you're in a situation where you have to actually make a concrete decision. And so what I just start doing is I just start writing down all the notes that are being played and kind of just summing them together to like, what chord progression would this make if I was going to hit them all on a piano sort of? Does that make sense? Yes, totally. (laughs) So, all right. So item one, you're checking that the chord progression is good. Of the whole entire mix. Yeah. Is good and not, there's not like stray notes that don't work with it. It seems to reflect like whatever star element you're trying to put across, where it could just be like a, you have this guitar lead you really like, you know, if you, made some of that chord progression together and you played it on a piano, you might find yourself being like, this sounds a little jazzy, but this lead sounds like pentatonic. And you know what I mean? And you find these like things that don't seem to correlate and certain chord progressions tend to evoke like certain emotions, you know, where like nearly every single song in metalcore has some variation of, you know, you're going to play the minor chord. And if that's unopened, then you're going to, you know, have the eighth fret. (laughs) That's like the, you know, the, the brighter one or whatever you know, they, they tend to, you know, sort of match certain, certain melodies in certain ways. So sometimes if you just pull that all out and you try a different set of chords underneath it and you go, oh, okay, this is, this is working better and you A and B them. And then mm-hmm. you keep A and B in different ones until you go, all right, yeah, that seems to work out better. That's always helped me out a lot whenever I'm trying to figure out what the fuck is wrong with this. Got it. Okay. So what's next on the checklist? So usually what's next then is I think, changing um literally just when it comes to like which guitars and and the actual sounds that are playing those notes because certain sounds also evokes certain emotions like if you're using like the piezo pickups on the ernie ball it's going to feel a lot different than if you're you know using a uh les paul or whatever so sometimes you know i'm big on like 
contact and Omnisphere libraries. And sometimes you just go around and you, you try out different instruments playing those things and saying like, okay, does changing the actual sounds and, you know, where the fundamental frequencies are, does that like, you know, does that sort of work better for this? A lot of people say that, you know, there's the OG way of composing, which was, you know, at a piano and then taking that and orchestrating something that was written on a piano or like, you know, if you fast forward to the modern age, people would say, you know, you got to be able to write it on an acoustic guitar yeah. and a voice. And if you can't do that, it's not a real song. But while I do think there's a lot of validity to that, often the way something actually sounds is just as much, in my opinion, a part of how we know and love that song. Well, not only that, but in those events, there's an assumption being made. And that assumption is you have a great acoustic guitar player and a great singer in front of mm -hmm. you. Or a great pianist. Exactly. And that's something that I've gone through some songs, I've, I've Hawk specifically, because I, I have so many issues with my voice. It's ridiculous. I grew up with really bad allergies, <laughs> bad sense of resonance, you know. But, you know, sometimes there's just a, a chorus you can't nail and then you get a really good take. And then all of a sudden your brain is like, this is the lyric that I want. You know what I mean? And it's just yep. because you got a better take. I guess that kind of counts too. But, you know, making sure that it's tough because sometimes you you have to take things that aren't tracked very well and you have to use your imagination and say, what's this going to sound like when we actually, you know, flesh this out and make this sound like a real thing? And then I, I think I think like the main thing is just, you know, those relationships between the melodies and where the chords are moving around and making sure that the listeners, you know, things are being paced out in a way that they always feel like they're, you know, it's it's either coming in at the right time because they expected it or it's coming in at the right time because they didn't expect it. You know what I mean? Like those mm -hmm. those two things. But still coming in at the right time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what's next on the checklist? I, I want to hear about this shit. Oh boy, I didn't actually write the checklist down, but doesn't matter. I'm sure you can rattle off about 22 more things. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would say another thing is playing around with different elements of rhythm. You know, like that's the that's the next thing because sometimes you find yourself in situations where things feel too slow or too fast and it's just simply the way that, you know, the things that are actually creating like moments of impact aren't they're just not laid out in the right way. So just you don't, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you don't kind of feel like a sense of fun from it. I'll even go so far. Another thing is sometimes thinking about like visually, like if you were going to put this song in on a show, which is sometimes tough with heavy music because no, heavy music only gets like that thing where they're like, you know, they're about to like pick up a criminal off the street and he's like driving a car, you know, he's or, like parking his a car Chevy truck commercial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's like parking his car and they're blasting like, as I lay dying for a minute before, like, you know, the CSI investigators like pull him out and then, you know, it's back to the show. You know, actually heavy music makes movies cheesy often. It usually does not work. I think it works if it's something like gritty and it's pinned to an era. You know what I mean? Like if you're, mm -hmm. if you hear like bad brains playing, and it's in a situation that you would hear Bad Brains playing. Or some black metal or some shit. Exactly. Some raw underground basement shit. Yeah. But the type of shit that you and I would would aspire to make, the moment that turns on on a movie, you're just like, oh, shit, this cheesy-ass fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just like... <laughs> you know what I think it is? We understand what's authentic and what's not. 
in heavy music. That's a really, really important. I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I think that that's a really important part of heavy music is it feeling authentic. And lots of times in movies, you can tell that somebody who doesn't understand it made the decision to have something heavy here. And it's totally just wrong. It's like the wrong context. It just feels like an imposter did it or something. And they're not using it for the right emotion. It's just wrong. Everything's just wrong about it. Yep. There are times where I sometimes, with certain types of heavy music, I listen and I'm just sitting there like, what am I supposed to feel? Well, like, cause I know it's yeah. something, but it's like, is this a, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's the one thing that's so fun about is it does make very complicated, hard to describe emotions happen. You know what I mean? And the one thing that's funny is I, I think Ice Nine has the benefit of because the source material is, is horror and horror movies. There's actually a reason for people to be screaming in those. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like screaming actually works, but then it, it's just so funny how unnatural it is when you try to put it into a different setting, like a, you know, let's say an episode of a TV show or something like that. And you hear like, and you're just like, it's, it's so different than reality. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a base of, it's, it's a form of music that creates this like hyper reality and trying to fit it into, you know, things that are supposed to look real. It doesn't necessarily work, but an episode of Mr. Pickles, however. <laughs> well, it's something about super cool, heavy riffs in movies and TV shows make everything seem like you're watching a tractor pull or something. Like it just doesn't really work. <laughs> But uh, okay, so rhythm. So you're talking about rhythm and how things fall in time, whether they work well together and create a sense of fun, like you said. I just found out about Superior Drum. Like I had been seeing ads for them, like the MIDI loops. Oh, they're great. Dude, I never fucked with them until I was actually working with that guy, uh, Michael Morgoth. Do you know him? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's awesome. He's great. Um, He's such a, such a cool guy. Like... And um, so me and him were like kicking around some song ideas and uh, and he started cycling through those. And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> because like I've always had all those mini packs and I just I have a problem where sometimes I don't explore all the features of things. Well, I get it. I think that a lot of people assume that they suck. Y yeah, like I but it, there's actually something about um, like actually sitting back and trying out like what does happen if we try doing something where the snare doesn't necessarily fall on the three or the four, you know, what happens if, if we actually, you know, if we give it more of an upbeat feel and then the next thing mostly, and this is the biggest thing is just tuning, you know, it, it, there's something, something to be said about listening to something where all of, it's like rhythmic things that happen when things go out of tune. So I was just working on this hardcore band from Baltimore the other day. And it's funny because I was explaining because, you know, sometimes people get pretty impatient when you're sitting there trying to find the right chord that just mm -hmm. sings correctly. And, you know, people get kind of impatient and they'll be like, what, what are we doing? And you're like, well, listen, and you get one and, and it goes, and it does this, this thing. And that's, that's an event in the song where it goes, you know, it has that moment where the, the, pitch just sort of like moves and it actually grabs the ear's attention and it takes away from something else that's happening in the song. And I, I remember a long time ago, I used to do stuff at like Atrium with those guys and they're like experts with tuning everything. So they kind of got that in my head uh, early on. Same with Josh Wilbur when uh, This or the Apocalypse worked with him on Halt What's Left. 
absolute like wizard. You know, he would like listen to things and he, he would just be listening to a note or a riff that might have like, you know, 45 notes in it. And he would be like, uh, two or three of those notes are out of tune. He'd be like, how the fuck did you hear that? Yeah. You know, and that's another thing is just like, you know, sitting down and be like, did the pitches of this actually distract me from like what's happening in, in here? Um, so those are like, kind of like, I mean, those are like all the fundamental, like this is what makes a good recording things. But a lot of the stuff that I produce ends up having a lot of like programming layers or like just instrumentation on top of it, just by default, you know, you, you end up with, I went through a lot of phases of like playing around with sounds and, you know, you go through Omnisphere and, you know, serum or whatever the fuck else. And, and, you know, you're just kind of like laying things in. And for a while, like for me, it was kind of trying to fill the mix in, you know what I mean? Like if I was listening to something and I felt like it didn't have that much like energy up in the high mids, you know, I might try to find like a certain synth that goes like, you know, like kind of fills that in. But over time, the one thing is kind of like on a lot of heavy music, there's like a single note that's just hanging over top of a song or the programming seems to like sum together to be a single note or a single chord. And sometimes um, if I'm having trouble with a part, like you know, normally your, your, your go-to is to just take the minor note and, you know, come up with some instrumentation that just one hanging note over top and you make sure it's in a style or something that's, that, that fits that genre, but sometimes changing that note and trying a different one and seeing, does it like lift the part up a little bit? Does it make it, does it make it feel better? You know what I mean? Where like sometimes, uh, you know, some choruses you end up, doing, you know, like some arpeggiated stuff or whatever. And it all sums together to be the major note, the first note of the scale or, or the third note of the scale. Sometimes I, I, I like, I like that on a lot of like heavier stuff. If I have like, you know, if I have a heavy part and it comes in and it just doesn't, I don't know, I hate the word vibe because the worst people have like kind of co-opted that. No, but what, what other word are you going to use? Yeah, exactly. Like if it just doesn't vibe, you know, bro, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes that's one trick that has just rescued me in, in incidents where you're reaching, you know, you're reading the room and the band's kind of just like, I don't know if that hits well. And then you just find like, you know, some, some hanging orchestration on top that just plays the third note of the scale. And then all of a sudden they're just like, oh man, that like, you know, it just feels way spookier now it works. And you're like, all right, cool. We can keep moving. That's another thing. And usually around that time, like if you try out a lot of these things and they're not working, it's just time to try to figure out an, a new starting point. Be like, you know what? Let's grab that guitar. Let's plug it into my boss synth pedal riff around and see if anything seems like magical and you know we'll start there maybe like just start muting individual things and you know maybe sometimes you 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 spend all day trying to make a cool part and you walk away with the programming layers that you added in the last hour and those end up being the start to a new idea that works out a lot better. Like that's a situation that sometimes happens. So I really do like doing layered pr like production with a lot of layers because I get to just sometimes in an emergency just start muting stuff and I end up finding something that is special. And a lot of the times I don't even use all the stuff in the mix because it doesn't need to be there. You know what I mean? So it was just something that helped you get to the next idea. Especially when you're work I work with a lot of singers who are planning on writing here you know, they're planning on writing in the studio. So a lot of what you're doing is you're trying to make something that makes their brain active and makes them go like, oh yeah. And then they start like just scatting mm -hmm. nonsense into the mic. Or if they're really good, sometimes they just start singing lyrics and you're just like, oh shit, this is great. But 
you know, the, the main, the main thing you're just trying to do is just make them feel, you know, feel like they're in it. You know what I mean? And that sometimes requires going back, you know, like, you know, retreading ground and being like, all right, let's start again. And let's take some of the stuff we made here, plop it over here. They're starting all over again, new chord progression, new rhythm, new, it's just all you need is just that one moment that you get like a really cool vocal. And you just feel a certain way. And then you're like, all right, cool. That there we go. I, I like if you can just have something that you know, you are going to use that you're good. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And also what I like about that is not being married to it just because it helped you get to the next spot. I am drowning babies. Yeah, good. You know, right? Like just putting, them in, drowned. just putting them in the bathtub and being like, <laughs> you served a purpose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, at least their life had some purpose to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more than a lot can say. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that one thing you just brought up that I think is really key is you could spend all day working on stuff and then some layers you come up with at the very end become the start of mm -hmm. the actual ideas. And I feel like that happens a lot when people are writing, you know, even just writing riffs or chord progressions for a song is they'll start with what they think is idea one and then go to idea two, but they're not that great. And then by idea three, they've got something really cool happening. And instead of just ditching idea one and two and making idea three actually be the seed, uh, they'll keep the shitty stuff. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with rock and metal bands and stuff. They get callback. They get pretty attached to what they think is the good thing. But if you can figure out the architecture of what they think is good, it's actually pretty easy to change things. So like, you know, example, somebody's playing an arpeggiated guitar part. It's not working. If you can figure out a better chord arrangement for the song, just take the the concept of that guitar part, you know, being like, well, he was you know, going, it goes up, you know, three notes, boom, 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 goes up three notes and then back down. And if you can change the notes, but still maintain the integrity of what the part was originally, be like, hey, I had to change some of these notes to fit, the, fit this new chord scheme. Usually that really does help with people feeling, you know, feeling like you're not just like, no, that idea sucks and we're going to use mine instead, dumbass. Kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leave! <laughs> so so there are times sometimes where if I have to rearrange a part, like um, I worked on this, man, I love this album. Uh, There's this band Misery that I worked on, and they were like on Revival Records. They kind of came in with a lot of like, this like My Chemical Romance throwback type stuff. As we were getting the singer to sing on this stuff, it's kind of getting a little bit more alternative as we we're working on it, but we were really able to maintain a lot of the integrity of the original parts by taking the concepts and just being like, okay, well, you're doing like an octave chord thing here. I'm going to change some of the notes of these octave chords and we're going to rearrange this so that, you know, where the song once was like, you know, the, the, you know, like, I don't know, like a six, four, two, one progression or whatever. I think it works better if we instead go from the minor chord up to the one chord and to the, you know, and, and you change those and you make all the existing musical elements that you already had. Like there was a piano there and there was an octave chord and there were some violins and you just use those and change those notes to support the new thing. The band gets to walk with away with the thing that they walked in trying to create, but it's just, it had to be changed to fit the, the, the new, you know, this new idea that you have. And um, that made like, Man, once I started doing that, that made my life so much easier because I would sometimes just look at my screen with dread, 
you know, be like, oh my God, we recorded all this shit and we're going to have to redo it and make a new part. And, you know, like the anxiety and everything. Mm -hmm. But when you're just like, when you think of it more like, okay, I'm going to put that in a playlist and I'm going to make a new version of it. And I liked that sound. I liked that tone. And you actually view it more like, okay, we actually already went through the tone building process. We went through the sound selection process. That's done. Now we change the notes those sounds are making. And uh, that that's a lot that's a lot of fun and and I actually found out I could rearrange a part really quick that way just by being able to take away from my brain being like hey you don't have to start from scratch yeah not reinventing the wheel exactly yeah well it, it respects the work you put in yeah 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 it's it's a, every now and then you try to be your own friend and be like hey man we're not we don't have to we're not gonna have to redo all that buddy and you're like thanks Riggy. Though you might. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the deeper part of you that's just like bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I guess knowing when that's the move and when it's not the move is part of being good at it, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Writing music is, it's fun. So what about when you get into a situation where you have, like I was saying earlier, say like you're working on a pre-chorus or something, you have a chorus, you have a verse, you know that you want something between them but you don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah. <laughs> but you know that they're the verse and the chorus from the same song. What I'm usually going to do in that situation where I'm just like, okay, I need some space here. Cut that part of the session, move it over, make the space you need. And I'll sometimes try playing around with maybe my keyboard first and seeing if there is anything that I can actually put. Like, I always like, uh, you know, because I, I tour and I perform and I've learned that that's like a really, really integral part of, of who I am is I like to perform. Even though, frankly, between you and me, I'm not particularly good at it. I still like to do it. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm usually going to start with like a keyboard. And if nothing's working, sometimes I'll just grab a bass, I'll run it through a fuzz pedal. And that was something I, I worked with this songwriter for a while, Josh Strock. And he's awesome. He's like, I think one of my favorite guitar players just because he'd write these like really complicated riffs and then like 10 minutes, you know, he might like play his riff and be like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, can you record that? And like, and then he records like six of these things. And then he's recalling ones from like 20 minutes before by memory. And they're just something he played once. He'd be like, oh, uh, wait, can you go back to that first riff? I have another idea to put over top of that. And he would just put this whole song together and it would be scratch. Like it'd be scratch. It wouldn't be entirely edited and cleaned up or anything, even though he is a really good guitar player. By the time we had sat down for like 45 minutes, he would have a song with like six different parts you know, maybe four different riffs or leads on top, like a main riff or a chord progression or something, and then like different leads and stuff. And then we would start going, okay, um, let's take that lead. Let's turn that into like a piano. Let's like, and by the time you got, went through and you, you know, changed the sounds and stuff, you'd actually have like pretty much a full arrangement that would need drums and vocals. But the one thing that would happen sometimes is he would like grab like a fuzz pedal. He has like this whole pedal board and just, like we we're saying with sound design, sometimes if you throw a certain effect on something and you start jamming around with it, it leads to different results. So if I grab like that synth pedal, the boss synth pedal, I'm gonna play something that sounds like it's off Yeezus by Kanye. You're, you're just gonna end up playing like some pentatonic riff with that thing. And then if you grab like a reverb pedal or some, or, you know, a fuzz distortion or literally anything else, your brain's gonna, it's just gonna wanna like hear something different. Yep. So, I, I really do. I'll sometimes even just like, I'll, I, I have the universal audio stuff. 
I, I did this actually recently. So Pat uh, Galani, Ice Nine Kills drummer, um, he, him and me have this project I've been producing called Lowest. So we had to stop in Lancaster. We had an off day. And then we were going to play in Kentucky the next day. And on our off day, for a couple hours, I worked with Joe on something. And then me and Pat were working on this Lowest song that I kind of like, I was playing around with on tour. And it had this like nine inch nails sounding like synthy, you know, growly synth beginning and stuff. I had an idea for a chorus, but we had to leave in like 30 minutes and I just real quick hit record and I went like, and I, I honed out the whole baseline and then I hit record and I threw some effects on the console on the microphone. And I just kind of sang this melody that I heard in my head. Like I was like, and then I did another one and I just had these three audio files and I actually, um, those ended up actually, I, I just ended up writing when we were the next day when we were in Kentucky, I grabbed a guitar and I had these three like shitty ass vocals. I mean, I was running auto tune on them just so they at least be in tune. And I wrote a couple guitar parts on top of it. And in the end, I actually used one of those oh, cool. vocals as like a synth layer. Like I put mm -hmm. a, you know, like the Valhalla on it and then put like Tremolator. So it was like, you know, kind of thumping through. But j just being able to like sit and perform some stuff, you, you usually end up with some audio content that's like, hey, that, you know, if it feels good and it helps you get to the next thing, you can usually use that or at least use that as a start and then compose on top of it and, and just until you, you know, you just keep hitting play and you're like, okay, yeah, that works. We, we got from there to there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost sounds like almost bringing in like a palate cleanser at times can really help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When there are no ideas and everybody's just kind of standing around not knowing what the fuck to do, it is time to have fun. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm a guitarist as well. Like, if I can grab like some of my fun ass pedals and, you know, be like, oh shit, let's put the fuzz pedal after the delay. That's going to sound like shit. And, you know, you just make something weird. I always like using those moments to try and, you know, lead to the creation of something because there's always kind of an element of fun to it, you know? You don't totally consider yourself like a guitar player, guitar player. You didn't before Ice Nine Kills and you had to kind of... I had to really pick it up for that gig. You had to kind of become one. Man, that that was that was a weird moment. So what happened was um, I was working over FaceTime with uh, Spencer, just writing songs with him because um, I did a tour with this band, uh, Carousel Kings. And I was kind of like TMing, doing merch because I was recording them and... They asked if I wanted to. I was like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. And like, oh, the Ice Nine Kills dudes, I know them. So I went on uh, this tour with them and, you know, bumped into Spencer and we, you know, we got a drink and he was, he was talking to me about the creation of their new record and it sounded stressful because he was, uh, he still needed more material and he was working with all these different people. So I was like, yeah, yeah, let's FaceTime. So we met like five or six times and, you know, we, we, we came up with a couple ideas that made the record and then I didn't hear from him for a while. And I, I was randomly, I was in an urgent care getting fluid pumped into me because I got food poisoning. I puked like seven times. So I was like, I better, you know, I better go see a professional. <laughs> and he calls me and he asks if I can do a tour in three or four days. He has four days. He was like, good timing. And he thought I was a guitar player because he watched me, you know, play guitar <laughs> over FaceTime when we were working on these songs. He was like, oh, I didn't know you were a guitar player. And you're like, I'm like playing the parts. I'm like, I'm not, you know, but I, I re-recorded so many bands guitars through the process of doing studio stuff. And 
they didn't have any uh, anybody else. And they basically were like, please, can you do this? Like, do you, and I was in a spot in life that, uh, yeah, all right, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. You know, they were even just like, dude, if, if you're having problems playing it, you know, you can play a simplified version, but we, they needed somebody who could do vocals as well. So the thing that was really weird was I had gotten an Ernie Ball endorsement like four months before that. And I ordered my JP7 and it literally had come in two days before I got the food poisoning when I went to my friend's bachelor party and I don't drink. So I went to my friend's bachelor party and I got food poisoning on the way home eating French toast at a diner in like rural Pennsylvania. That's good luck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I get back home and I finally get to play this guitar for the first time. And they send me the videos of JD playing the, the parts for me to learn. And he's playing the exact same fucking guitar. And I was like, that's weird. And then I find out this guy only plays JPs. And so I ordered it, I ordered it like three months before. And I'm, I'm not like a fake guy or anything, but it's just weird. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, I ordered this guitar three months in the past it shows up. I don't get a chance to play it, which I was kind of bummed about. I was like, because my friend Max was picking me up. I'm like, fuck, I was hoping to play that thing. But all right, I'll go to Evan's. Evan's getting married and I'm the best man. So let's fine, let's go. And uh, <laughs> I get back and then all of a sudden I'm learning the songs for this band that only exclusively plays these guitars. So that was that was interesting. But um, I actually kind of surprised myself quite a bit because I'm sitting down there and you know, for the first time in years, actually really putting some legit effort into learning whole longer pieces. And I was like, I think I can hack this shit. Like, let's go. And then I had to learn how to do like a million fucking vocals on top of it. Uh, that sounds stressful. Man, that band, there are parts where the, the hand and the mouth don't have anything to fucking do with one another. They're playing like these, like, like, you know, these like rhythms that are just, staccato and broken up and the vocals will be doing a like like you have to just like you have to learn it all as if it's like one big instrument where you know sometimes i'd have to learn parts where it's like you know syllable syllable and then one's on the chug and then a chug and then a syllable yep. right after it. you, you kind of learn it that way yeah so i like literally end up four days and then i fly out to sacramento you know we all look at each other uh, like standing on stage in front of like 1500 people and giving them the thumbs up, just being like, just look like you know what you're doing. I figured I was just doing one tour and then they asked if I wanted to do Warp Tour. And I was just like, why? Like, they were like, well, it'd be... Why not? It'd be easier to have... Yeah, it was like, you know, it was really fun and, you know, you're great on stage. It'll be a good time. I'm like, all right. And I think it was just because uh, guitar techs are more expensive because I was... <laughs> yeah, I was restringing them all and stuff. No, it was, it, it's a Warp Tour was like the best time ever. And then the record came out and the record did really well. And then they asked if I wanted to do the Atreyu tour. And it was like, I'm starting to sense a pattern here and I'm still playing. And so really it, it, it was crazy just going from being like, yeah, you know, I'll grab a guitar and I can, you know, I'll chunk a riff out and record it in, you know, little bits and pieces. And the next thing I know, I'm like playing for, you know, five times more people than Tota ever played for. I mean, isn't that how shit happens though? That's like, that is the nature of how opportunities come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. You know people and they are having a problem with something and you might, not necessarily do, but you might have the solution for them. And because you know each other and get along, they'll float you 
a chance. Yeah. And that's basically how shit happens. That's like how a good 80 to 85% of my opportunities have come up, like some variation on that theme. I think the biggest challenge for musicians is actually being able to create the framework of a lifestyle that allows you to accept that opportunity. Like if you go out to LA, your biggest opportunities will be tomorrow. You know, if somebody is like, hey, can you, do you want to do a writing session with blah, blah, blah? And it's, it's not, you don't have a lot of time to plan. You, you just go. And the type of people who, who get the gigs are, are the type of people who they have to live a, in a way that makes them slightly available for them in some way. I mean, like there's, you know, it's, there are no absolutes in any of this, but the, if I had not focused on, on, you know, I just really badly didn't want a fucking boss. That's, that's all this ever was. I did not want a boss. That sucks. I can't do that either. Yeah. But my dad was the same way. He, he was like my one family member that was always kind of rooting for me because he would just be like, you know, fuck being in an office, man. Some people, they're like me. I'm not capable of that, of, uh, working for somebody. This isn't better by, by any means. You know what I mean? Like, no. cause I always, I always worry that like when I say something like that, that there's, you know, somebody feels like I'm taking a shot at them. It's like, oh no, I wish I could have stability. Trust me. I'm just not, it's, it's just not for me. Like I can't do it. But, um, but yeah, no, it's important to know that about yourself though. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and so my life made me available for a big opportunity. Could you leave next week for a tour? And I've tried to get a lot of my friends, you know, gigs. And there's always that thing to be like, oh, dude, well, uh, see, the one problem is my PTO wouldn't kick in. And you're like, no, 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 you, you'd have to quit. Like, you'd, you'd have to go do this. Or, oh, man, you know, I can't. And I understand, yep. you know, people have lives, they have bills. They, and the thing about it is, is when people want to do music, you have to have a life that'll, that'll allow for that. And this is the shitty the shitty part about it is there's a level of privilege for a lot, a lot of, once you start touring, you meet a lot of people with crazy amounts, you know, hard times. I wrote a bunch of hard times, article headlines that never got used by. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh no, no, no. I, I you wouldn't. I, they're, they're, they're just mine. I just, oh, oh. They I said, don't know that either. Yeah. Well, I sent it to somebody oh. at work series. Like, oh, I feel like these are kind of treading ground that, that we've already gone over. I was like, all right, that's understandable. Don't call us. We'll call you. Yeah, yeah, it was a band kid with wealthy parents is like a walking documentary on income disparity. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You meet a lot of people with some crazy fucking privilege because they're the people that were able to get the gig. But that's not always the case. I've always had to fight to make a living for myself. And I, you know, I, I fortunately I do have a family that's like they're definitely like in my court and they've always been, you know, supportive. But you know, I've got bills and everything and the studio is my main income. I would love for touring to be my main income just so I did, wouldn't have to juggle a million things, but it's just not possible. The one thing is, it's just that always comes into play is when you're talking to people, they, they start talking about jobs and PTO and, you know, and their, their company and things like that. And you're just, and this blew my fucking mind, but somebody I tour with, not in the band, but one of the people we work with, they use the term civilians. Oh, yeah. I have heard that term used widely. I, I like my jaw dropped because I'd never thought about it that way because, you know, I'm I, I'm in my 30s and, you know, I'm, I'm single and I've kind of hit this point where it's like, look, no one my age is going to be like, 
yeah, that's cool. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's, that's not, so, you know, like, I just am kind of like, all right, this is the way it's going to be for a while. That's fine. And the way they responded to me was they were just like, well, yeah, I don't think any civilians your age are really going to be that understanding of this. I was like, did you just fucking say civilians? Like, we are in Iraq. I know that it's a joke, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels to it in the, in the sacrifices to a normal life that you need to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, you know, a, a soldier. I'm kidding. Someone's going to hate me for that joke. I've always thought it's funny when, like, musicians think that they... I mean, look, music's hard. Musi <laughs> musicians don't know what hard is compared to people who go into combat. Oh, my God. You know, listening to musicians who throw the, like, I work so hard thing out there. It's like, look, you probably do, but you're in a band. So you still have the easiest fucking job in existence. You know what I mean? Like if I'm playing guitar, all right, so let's say, and I can't do this anymore because of COVID, but every now and then I'd like run down the stairs and just get in the audience and play and like, you know, climb up and then end up like crowd surfing and people come up and they, or they'll send you messages and they'll be like, that was the craziest fucking thing I've ever seen. And you're like, the craziest thing, what scale am I being great? What weird curve? <laughs> I literally walked. I walked. That was it. Yeah. Some guitar player that we all know that's an Iraq vet, combat vet. I was talking to him recently and I was like, so does anything from the military translate at all? Like maybe the discipline translated to like how you approach the instrument because you're a super disciplined player. Like any parallels? Like did it affect your life as a musician at all? And he was like, well. I don't take anything too seriously on tour because what I've experienced is so much worse than anything that could ever happen on tour. And also it made me really like realize what babies most musicians are because they whine and cry and throw fits over things that just don't matter. Yeah, I'm fortunate enough that I, I'm in a camp and actually both of my bands, most of the people in my camp are, are incredibly self-aware. There were some fucking pros, so yeah. And that self-awareness, how like... Ice Nine Kills actually has a degree of self-awareness even in the songs because we're, we're like, the vi if you watch any of the music videos, there are these skits and the skits are just, you know, like, this guy's a fucking hack. He's just taking the horror movies, ain't making the fuck. Like, they're leaning into it to a degree where it's like, okay, look, we get it. Like, we, we, we understand. And a lot of it, Spencer, he's actually like, if you talk to him about like what we're doing, he, he it's, it's super funny because he, he's just, he's aware of how privileged and fun it is, but you can't escape from there being things that stress you out on, on the road or thing because there are things well, you want to fix. And, and it's just so funny because every now and then it'll be like, you know, you like, we'll remind each other. We'll be like, we are having this discussion in a prevost bus. And then everybody will be like, yeah, we are having this discussion in a prevost bus. Oh, oh yeah, totally. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in my career that causes stress, but then I need to remind myself that, got this big company that got big with metal like that's awesome and uh can never forget that yeah like ever no matter how stressful it gets like i always remind myself of like yo all this awesome shit you did with metal uh like shit's good well not only that but you're teaching people i don't think there's a much higher honor than that to me because i i kind of obsess over learning and education that's something that I think a lot of people I know, they, they, they'll, they, they make a lot of jokes of it because I'm, I'm like always watching tutorials or reading books. I'm like always trying to learn things about my job. That's something I admire a lot. And I, and I love to, I love to teach. 
And I actually just literally minutes before this, we started this podcast, I had to post for, um, I'm doing one of those music mentors online classes. Oh, I saw, I saw songwriting class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be fun. I got to plug it, man. Sorry. No, but uh, it's all good. Just the teaching aspect is awesome because you guys are reaching millions and, and millions of people. And a lot of those people don't have the reason they don't have like the mentors that I would have had, I would have had, or you would have had, they don't have like those resources. Cause some, you know, you go to some areas on tour and you look around and you're like, man, if I was 17, I wouldn't have known how to become the person. No. And I realized too, that the mentors I had are like not real life for almost anybody. Like most people will never get the opportunities I got to learn from the people I got to learn from. But Outside of those opportunities that I had, there was literally nothing anywhere for this style of music. So, you know, now there is, which is really, really cool. I think you can actually learn how to do this shit. I think that's like the best possible thing that you could provide to people who like this stuff is the ability to actually learn it. Oh, I agree. Uh, Well, I mean, look, every other art form has it. Ours is the only one that never did. We're kind of like the WWE of art where it's just like, you motherfuckers know that we're, we're, we're putting up numbers. Stop acting like we're funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, WWE has real athletes in it too. Yeah. This is a discussion that like everybody's had where they're just like, you know, like the oh, fake or whatever. Look at what's happening. <laughs> just like, he still jumped off the fucking thing. The thing that blows my mind though about WWE, it's the plots. I, like there was this episode of This American Life where they were incorporating like personal fights into the plot almost immediately. And it's sadistic. I mean, honestly, I've never seen it. I know what you're talking about, which is great. Seth Rollins, Seth Rollins fiance broke with up with him over uh, over Twitter during like an event. And they worked it into the plot within 15 minutes. That's great. Right before their fight, you know, his competitor comes out and he's just like, Seth Rollins can't even keep a marriage together. And I I remember watching it like this dumbfounded, like, oh my God. That's some South Park level shit. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing to each other? (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, but anyway, WWE, it's fun. WWE. Yeah. No, it, it is South Park level being able to move that quickly. I want to talk a little bit more about being available for opportunities. One thing I've always tried to help people with is hooking them up with appropriate opportunities. And so back in the day, like back in the band days, I would help other bands find replacement musicians, like usually from like local scenes and stuff like people who were too good to be in a local band. I would hook them up with the right people. And there were quite a few people who went on to get into some really big bands and really make names for themselves. However, there are quite a few people who I like hooked up with these opportunities who were not willing, forget like a real job and a family. They were not willing to leave their local band for a real opportunity. Yeah. The concept of having to give something up to do something else is really tough for people. Like it's a nice idea like to say, I'll sacrifice for this. But when it comes down to it, that actually scares a lot of people. I think when you get involved in something like this, where you're like, I'm a metal musician um, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a hardcore guy or whatever it is. A lot of our lives is a story we tell ourselves. It's a, it's an identity we form. It's I'm, I'm this now, you know what I mean? And I think that's, that's being taken to a pretty far extent, you know, and like right now on the internet, like people have, they just, 
they pick an identity and they're that thing. And, and breaking up with that is fucking difficult for some people because you're essentially, it's like almost akin to death for, for some people where it's like, no, 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 I, I am the guy from this thing. On that token, what I always try to do and I try to like talk about with the musicians I work with is trying to identify yourself as a musician and just simply be a musician. And yes, have that band. But so many of us will spend so many years of our lives desperately trying to make this this entity we create. Like, so let's say, I don't know, let's say you're uh, 19 and for whatever reason you name a band this or the apocalypse. Let's just say. Yeah, let's just say. You know what I mean? You're, you're, maybe you're, you know, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But <laughs> very difficult name to get on things difficult name to tell your girlfriend's parents about, you know, where they're like, this or the apocalypse. Oh, the apocalypse. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> I spent so many of my years, like that was my thing. And, 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 and everything had to be in the name of, you know, getting Toda somewhere. And there's a certain point where I, I actually think I shifted my focus more to just making sure that I had fans. I had, I had a career. I had things that I could do so that I could help my band. Bands are a lot cooler when they're a collection of people that people really want to know know about. Yes. You have bands comprised of people who are just kind of like hiding behind it, sort of, and just being like, well, I'm, you know, I'm here. And and it's a lot easier for a younger guitar player to think about it, be like, yes, get the band, make the band. If that's what you love to do, make that band. And, and push the hell out of it. Hand out flyers at the fucking mall if that's what you do. I don't know. I'm in my 30s. I don't have a fucking clue what you I don't know what you do anymore. <laughs> the mall, huh? I was the kid that was always handing out flyers when I was young. But also, just as important, make sure that you as a guitar player are getting somewhere with that. And you're generating fans for you and your guitar playing. And if you're not, figure out why. Do people not wait, like the way you look? Sometimes that happens. Do you need to fix it? That's up to you. Do you play different stuff? Maybe people don't like it when you play certain stuff. Maybe they like other stuff you play. There's screws to turn, you know? When you start thinking about yourself as a musician and the opportunities that you have, doing those things is a lot easier. It's, it's a lot less stressful. It's a lot less like you're, you're killing your identity and you're, 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 you're betraying yourself and you're betraying people around you. Because the thing about it is, it's not true. If you take that big gig... Yeah, your local band back home, they, they might have to wait, but what if you bring them all those fans? So my life changed with this. I went on that first Ice Nine Kills tour, and we opened up for Motionless and White, and they had like 13 of their fucking friends from Pennsylvania on payroll. And that changed like my whole experience with music because I literally was like, wait, that's an option? And I had spent like five pretty boring, dark years. Just I lived in a house, I had a girlfriend, and I just... I was producing local band after local band, fighting to understand more about the production side of things because I wanted to learn how to make the albums that I would liked. Mm -hmm. And and there's there's a there's a R and D process to that, you know. Like it takes it takes a lot of work to to get your ears and your skill set to the point where you can do that. And so I'm happy that I I spent those years off the road really focusing on it because you know eventually you start learning how to mix things and you start learning how to track and edit and you start learning how to play. Little by little, slowly but surely. I, I was always planning on quitting, but every time I made a record, I would listen. I'd be like, this is a little bit better. It sucks less. It's like a puzzle in your basement. You're just, 
slowly putting it together. You're like, wait a second. I think I see the fucking, you know, I, I think I see part of it, you know? And so I was doing that. I take the Ice Nine Kills gig. But the thing is, being on stage, it's, it's unfortunately, it was hard for me to feel like it was much more than an act of selfishness to be like, everybody look at me. Yes, it's fun. Super fun. Yes, performing is great. But you hit a point in your life where you ask yourself, is it fun enough for me to make all these sacrifices just to get myself on stage just so I can relive my 13th fucking birthday again, you know, where everybody's just like, you rule. And you're like, yeah, I do. Yeah, you have to ask yourself if you're just being a narcissist. Exactly. And and I, I was kind of erring on that side where I was like, I would love to perform. And, you know, I had fans from Toda, but it didn't feel like net good was being created in the world. It felt like net bad was being created. But then I see that these motherfuckers are hiring their friends and they don't have to work at, you know, places they don't want to work at. They can have a life that they enjoy. And I was like, wait, that's an option. And I came home and I started rehearsing like a psychopath. I gave up having a social life. I gave, cause I was just like, wait a second. I could get, you know, I had a friend who was injured really bad in a motorcycle accident. What if he could be like my tour manager one day? You have to find an actual reason to do these things that is based in purely, that you're actually passionate about. Like you have to ask yourself, why do you want to be the best guitar player? Is it because you want people to think you're smart or do you want to generate opportunities for the people around you or, or whatever else or, you know, or, or you want to meet, I don't know, a specific guy and like, I don't know, anybody can have a reason for anything. Well, do you know yours? That's what matters. Yeah. For, for me, it's just, I want to actually be able to cr like create a, a, a life where, you know, the people that, that, that are close to me, I can generate opportunities for them yep. and we can get out of the fucking system. I'm pretty passionate about the fact that people are still getting paid like $12 an hour and it's not enough to pay for apartments. Like that should just be illegal. Like that shouldn't be a thing, but somehow it's still a thing. And so many people that I love and know are like stuck in the system where they're like, they're being spoken down to every day by, by people, just in like little ways. You know what I mean? Like you show up to a place and you sell stuff that you could never afford. And every single time that, that transaction happens, you're just reminded of how little you're worth. It, you know what I mean? Like that's, there was a, this one person had a, a write-up on, on the internet where they worked at a watch store and they could not afford to help their mom with something that she was going through. It was like tear jerking. It was one of the saddest things I ever wrote, read because the last line was just, I'm not worth a watch. That whole thing, I never really realized it uh, and, until I started reading. All, like, there's this big, like, you know, the great resignation is happening right now. And everybody was away from work long enough to be like, you know what, fuck this, which I love. But I think that that was always like kind of a driving factor for me is like we said, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be ending up in a situation where I was feeling belittled. Like, I do that to myself enough as it is. <laughs> you don't need to add. Yeah, like, I don't need some other <laughs> motherfucker doing it. You know what I mean? So I, I've lost all of my my hourly wage jobs for the most, but not all of them. I used to drive for a company and I had a great relationship with them because it felt like I was doing my own thing. I would just get banned to go. I'd get flown out, pick up a vehicle, drive it. You know, I had a credit card. You know, the thing that I admire about what you're saying is uh, you feel like this about the world and you recognize that the world is what the world is. But uh, within that, you can create your own opportunity and find a way to 
positively influence at least your sphere. Yeah, it, it, that's that's like yeah. as much as you can do, which is unfortunate. But at, at the same time, you know, sometimes it goes well. And well, if everybody did that, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not it's not that unfortunate, man. Like I think if everyone did that, just focused on like the five to ten people closer to them and making their lives better, we'd be, live in a different world. It, it, yeah, and like it, you know, every time you go see one of these bands or musicians, you see the guys that get to represent it on stage and they're having a good time, but there's a pretty big team behind them as well that are, are counting on that band. And it was, you know, I, I started sitting in with Ice Nine Kills on discussions where they're, you know, they're talking about um, who they're going to hire for, you know, sound and, and, you know, they're having discussions about it and you, you realize you're like, holy shit, we are going to be that person's source of income. Yep. So then you come back home and you're recording the local band who just wants to play breakdowns and you're listening to their problems and you're like, motherfucker, just fucking make something so you can hire somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're talking about like, you know, this transition or this breakdown, like it's the end of the world. And you're like, there's, there's nothing to lose yet. Like, but, you know, you look at a band like, you know, like, say, Motionless and White or, you know, any Metallica, any bigger band, when they put an album out... Those are people's lives. Yeah, they're doing it in hopes they can, you know, continue doing that. I don't think anybody thinks about it that way, because I didn't even think about that it that way until I was, like, fucking 30. You know what I mean? Like, where I was just like, wait a second, this isn't just about looking cool? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely think about that all the time. Like, uh, I think that it's one of the coolest parts of... Well, I'm sure you do, because you, you run like 10 fucking businesses. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the coolest parts of it, is uh, yeah. getting to provide for cool people. I have a lot of discussions with my, one of my friends from Lancaster. His name's Jeremy. He's, I used to work for him when I was young, and he tolerated me. So we've stayed friends, and we were having a conversation the one day. We we're asking each other. It was, he, was, he was asking me, he's like, what do you think success is? Because I remember thinking about it for a while. And, and I, I remember being like, cause it's not, there's no dollar amount. There's so many people who, who actually make a lot of money and they don't feel anything from it. They, there, there can only be, it only serves to show them how much they don't have because you're boiling it down to a number. What I felt like success would be like, if I was going to feel successful, it was like, it would just be like, well, could I actually generate like enough opportunity for the people around me that they could feel successful? Like that, that, that seems like the only thing that will work. I actually thought about it for a while is, and, and that kind of keeps me driven, but you can rat tail off into a lot of discussions about how then you're dealing with the personalities of all the people that you're working with and not everybody sees it that way. And, and a really big part of, of being, you know, trying to not only work in entertainment, but work with other people is you have to find people whose goals align. Yep. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge, but, uh, it's hugely important. It's almost, I'd say crucial, but uh, I think it's a good place to end the episode. Excellent. That was a lot of fun. 